mainstream media is dominated by the right and the left. The majority in the middle are left without a voice. You've reached the Conservative Hippie Podcast, a common sense look at life, the universe, and everything. Here's your host, Jay Frat, the Conservative Hippie. Oh, I I have him. I have him. I've I've corralled. I've fandangled. I've uh, I've captured Tom Luongo of the Gold Goats and Guns podcast once again to come on the Conservative Hippie Podcast. Tom uh, is the platform manager, the creator of the Gold Goats and Guns community. You can find him at tomluongo.me. He's a writer, a podcaster, a pundit, and an all-around swell guy. Uh, he is not a uh, financial advisor, although he might give some financial uh, analysis. Tom, hello. Good morning, Jay. Good afternoon, Jay. How are you? It's morning where you are. It's a lovely afternoon here in north florida for once it's been cold and i bet you're excited that fall has come in florida oh, <laughs> oh the only people more um excited about fall in florida than me are my dogs because <laughs> my poor dogs suffer through the heat all summer long so yeah they're like they're running around they look like they, even the 11 year old dog she, she looks like you know she looks like a puppy it's great well, I want to get right into it because I know I sure. don't have you for long, and you and I could go for hours talking about all the different events of our times. We're going to do a podcast. I'm going to get Tom's quick take on Bitcoin, the shadow <laughs> president, and then we're going to have a longer discussion on the recent rendition of Dune by Denis Villeneuve. Um so right off the bat, Tom, I want to get your take on Bitcoin. The price hit 66884 just before we went on this podcast. From listening to the Gold Goats and Guns podcast and your market analysis, I know that I have to wait for the weekly close. Mm -hmm. And these daily closes above the, uh, above the ceiling or resistance, whatever, however you want to put it, um, I I'm impatient. I I'm sitting here. I'm thinking, is this a, is this a breakout? Do I have to get back in? I've sold a little bit on the way up uh, for fear of a down draft, sure. but, but now we've broken these levels. Tell, tell us, what's your quick take on Bitcoin right now in this price action? Well, it's like everything else. Uh, when, you, when, you, when you start looking at price action, you know, breakouts in the short-term time periods become more significant as they, as they translate out into longer time periods, right? So, you know, all information is fractal. doesn't matter what we're talking about, but especially when you're looking, I mean, it's actually easiest to look at when you're looking at stock prices because you can get charts all the way from, you know, five seconds all the way out to a year, right? Uh, where you can aggregate, you know, information from five seconds out to a year. So just to remind everybody that this is the way I, I, I look at markets before I get started. So yesterday we had a big daily closing um, candle on the Bitcoin price. We closed at you know sixty seven five twenty seven. I'm using the uh, the Investing dot com uh, Bitcoin index price here, which is the highest price that we've had, uh, besting last week's uh, besting not only last week's high, but or the, the high from a couple of weeks ago, but also uh, but also the the close. So yesterday was the highest closing price of all time. It was also the new high price of all time. Um, we do need to get that translating through now we're now that we're here and every day that it closes above that previous high adds strength to that price so as long as we continue doing that today and then into wednesday this we're doing this on a tuesday and, and then to the rest of the week and for this particular data set 
Bitcoin closes at Saturday night. So we're very, from my perspective, we're very early in this particular week. So remember, everybody's and every chart that you look at is going to have a different definition of when the weekly closes on Bitcoin because it trades 24 7, 365. It's not like the Dow Jones, which is open, you know, from 9 30 in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon, right? So we always know when the close is on the Dow. So just so we're defining terms here. Um, yeah, I, I, it looks great. Uh, I think that if we continue to hold 67, you know, we close today above 67,000, it's only going to, you know, put more pressure on the shorts to cover. And then you're going to see, and eventually the things are going to run away from it. And it's going to run away from these price levels. And I think that, you know, we'll know, we'll have a really good picture of it by Friday afternoon. And, um, you know, but we get much farther away from where we are now. This is the 67, 66, 67 area. Um, if we get it, you know, we, we throw a 70 handle, you forget it. Like it, it's not coming back. It's not coming back down anytime soon. It's going to go through a peak first before it comes back and, you know, retest this zone if it ever does. Okay. So that's the way I would put it. Yeah. Well, from, from your, uh, analysis, I I'm really keen on this weekly close coming up. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. because it's one of those things I'm, I'm not a trader per se, but I have traded some positions and I, if we get a weekly close above these marks, I have to say that I was wrong and I have to be willing to, uh, look into the eye of peak and buy in. Uh, buy into what the trend uh, yeah. is, right? I mean, and that's one of the things. But here's here's the thing. This is the, the the mistake that a lot of people make when they're when they're looking at their their uh, you know they're they're making the decisions. There's nothing wrong with selling into strength. Selling into strength is actually the smart thing to do, right? So, say you bought Bitcoin, you know, on on the pullback a few weeks ago, back towards forty grand, right? And say yeah. you got it on 42, 43, something like that, and then it goes up to sixty five grand, and you sell into that. And thinking, okay, well, it's a, that's a double top. And that makes sense. It, it's up near the, the previous high, so there should be some resistance there. And it makes perfect sense to sell into that. Don't feel, don't feel bad for – never feel bad about taking money off the table and taking a profitable trade. You just made 20 grand on a you – know, theoretically on this trade, you just made 45%, 45 50% on your money. What are you complaining about? But if that's the case and, and then you wait to see what happens, now you're, now you're in a position where you have options. You, you know, you can you can wait to see if it pulls back. If it doesn't pull back, well, then, you know, you're probably going to have to buy in at a higher price and miss a small portion of that. And just think of the next leg up as a, OK, well, I bought it 42. I sold the 65 and I had to buy back in at 68. Well, then I really just bought a 45 yeah. or as opposed to 42. That's just the way you got to look at it and just move on with your life. That's, um, those are very comforting and uh, wise words uh, that I appreciate be, be, very much. Yeah, because no, it's really important to understand that you, you sell into a peak and then you have the option and then you don't know what the future is going to hold. All you have is probability. You have to, I, I, you know, when I do my market reports, I always talk about pot odds, right? You know, we have, you know, given where we closed last week and where we're going to open this week, we have two to one pot odds, for example, that we're going to go higher versus lower because that's what it's done in the past under these circumstances, you know, when faced with price climbs or price falls of these magnitudes versus where the price is now on the open, these are your pot odds. And this is what it's done over the last, you know, I don't know. in Bitcoin, it's, it's it's very difficult to get good pot odds on anything because it's so volatile. But, you know, the the type of analysis that I do in terms of the, the quantitative analysis of how to um, to compare this week's bar to next week's bar, or, you know, this bar to the next bar um, is applicable universally across all assets. 
doesn't matter if we're talking about wheat futures or we're talking about Tesla or we're talking about Bitcoin or we're talking about, you know, Japanese three-month T-bills. Three doesn't matter. Um, the rules are exactly the same. Go grab a whole bunch of data, do, do a histogram analysis on it and start binning stuff up and figuring out how, how often it, you know, traverses a particular distance from where it is to where it's going to go over this time period versus where, versus where it is to where it could go to the downside. And once you know those two numbers, you have pot odds. And then you make your decision. The, the, the odds are just the odds. It's just like playing poker. You can have, you know, you know, you're playing Texas Hold'em. A pair of aces in the hole only wins sixty to sixty-five percent of the time. But that's sixty to sixty-five percent of the time. That's a big edge in, in poker when yeah. you're usually playing much smaller edges. So, and the same thing in the markets. When when the markets can give you really clear signals, then you use them to your advantage. And breakouts like this one are a, a pretty clear signal. Uh, an aggressive trader would be buying in today. Yeah, and uh, I, you know, a I, cautious one would, would wait. I thank you for the uh, comfort because mm -hmm. uh, you know I try to tell myself, hey, it's okay to sell into this, and it's nice to have you uh, uh, back me Absolutely. up. I try to Absolutely. talk to my friend about baseball cards. You're using uh, poker pot pot odds sure. as an analogy. I use baseball cards, and we used to have this uh, this book called the Beckett, and the Beckett mm -hmm. was the guide to the pricing. And I learned mm -hmm. a very valuable lesson when I was younger that that means absolutely absolutely nothing until nope. someone buys it and that mm -hmm. that price printed in that Beckett guide means nothing it's what someone's willing to pay so mm -hmm. you can look at your bitcoin price all day long and consternate over it if you're never going to sell then maybe you should step away from the computer put down your phone and not check the price um, because I did actualize uh, some of this investment when I released some bitcoin in the low 60s um, mm -hmm. I want I want to move on because uh, that's this mm -hmm. is not the meat of the day. But there's sure. uh, I've been talking on my podcast about some some events that have happened recently that I think really speaks to um, the puppet president that we have, the shadow presidency that's going on. Whether it's mm -hmm. John Kerry uh, enunciating that Joe Biden really wasn't that familiar with the nuclear deal. Um, that went down between the UK, uh, the America and France, uh, leaving Australia out. Um, John Kerry went over there and said, mm. talked about Biden. And then he says, my president. And next thing you know, they've actually done a reversal and they've reversed that. Uh, come fast forward to uh, more recent times. And uh, just recently, he wasn't aware uh, said it was poppycock, uh, said it was a BS story that uh, that these migrants that were separated would get a $450 payout. Uh, the next day, the spokesperson came out and said, oh, no, he's aware of it. And the and the Justice Department is going to um, negotiate this settlement. And they tried to spin the story that he was talking about the number that he was saying poppycock to the number. So with all of that being said, we see all these tea leaves. You can clearly see Joe Biden. Uh, one of the one of the famous ones is where he follows the Secret Service agent to the back entrance, even after the Secret Service agent points him in the proper direction to walk into the White House. You have a lot of theories. Um, a lot of people would say that uh, Biden is beholden to China from all the corruption and backroom dealings sure. that we've seen. You have a different take on this. Can you just give us a quick snapshot of where you're at on who is controlling the Biden administration and possibly the multiple factions that are warring behind the scenes? Um, 
Yeah, uh, I, I'd be happy to. The uh, the the thing is, Biden was never president from the moment he took office. Uh, Obama's been the president the entire time. That's 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 clear. I think Obama was kind of president was kind of president, certainly when it came to foreign policy and the way foreign leaders treated Trump during Trump's presidency. Because everywhere Trump went, John Kerry followed him around. Um, and, and, Barack and Barack Obama and Barack was Obama was known to show up yeah. two weeks later after Trump, let's sure. say, did a tour through Europe. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the situation is very is 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 complicated. You have what's really clear about the last couple of weeks. Uh, and certainly you can see this when it comes to the situation be- brewing between Russia and Ukraine and the U- U.S.'s uh, back and forth and compu- almost confused policy. Uh, going on uh, over escalation of tensions in Ukraine. There's one part of the American political system, the State Department, the, the Department of Defense, that is absolutely egging the Ukrainians on to attack the Donbass. On the other hand, you have Obama behind the scenes sending his CIA director to the Kremlin to negotiate and get the Russians to, you know, not be so, you know, not be worried about this. It, it speaks to confused foreign policy. It can, speaks to everyone going, um, everybody just being confused as to what's going on because there's a uh, there's a war going on for the soul of the American government. There's actually multiple factions. Actually, you can go even further than that because then you have the people who are now standing athwart both Obama and Biden, uh, centered within the Federal Reserve. And I think in Wall Street, who were rightly looking at this, you know, Davos-inspired Great Reset, and realizing that they want to do away with our, with the current banking system, they want to do away with, they want to feed the the bankers like the Goldman Sachs and and J.P. Morgan and the rest of the, you know, the, the Antifa slash OWS crowd as chum and uh, scapegoats for all of our problems and. You can see all of these narratives playing themselves out, and it, all it does is it speaks to me that there's a bigger thing going on here than just oh China Joe and oh just this and oh. like everybody in Washington has been compromised by the Chinese in some way since the Clinton administration. Okay, it's not just on the Democrats; it's just been it's just obvious with people like Dianne Feinstein and even Biden himself and yada yada yada, right? But it, there's other there's other people as well. The issue here Mitch, is that Mitch I don't, McConnell, yeah, Mitch McConnell, they're, they're, sure, even you know, I mean, but the they're board. all dirty in Ukraine. But they're all dirty in Ukraine. This is the part that everybody, nobody wants to talk about. It's not just Biden who's dirty in Ukraine. It's Pelosi. It's by it's it's Romney. Romney. It's, it's Obama. It's the Clintons. It's all of them. They all got money in Ukrainian gas transit, right? So the bigger question here is, and I, you know, is and it's a and this is I know you don't want to spend twenty minutes on this, but. The, the bigger question there is, is who does Obama actually um, answer to or is who, who is he working with? And yes. it's very clear that he is not on board with China. Yeah, let me let me give a little quick synopsis there, where, synopsis there, where your uh, Biden might be controlled by China. You're saying China's in with a lot of different factions. The hidden faction all this time that you've posited 
was behind Obama is the UN and um, the Euro crowd um, that had undue influence over the Obama administration. Then you've got the Davos crowd, which is representing your uh, global oligarchs, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and you're talking about a Federal Reserve almost... Um, uh, I, I don't want to call it a revolution. Um, I'm, the word standing not, in opposition, standing. Yeah, they're they're all of a sudden breaking free from this tether mm -hmm. that they had. So uh, mm -hmm. it's almost chaos in in all of the puppets and the strings. The some strings are trying to break free and being yep. controlled by other uh, puppet masters. So so Obama, uh, tell us then Obama's about your a, Obama's been a devotion from the beginning. Or Davos, uh, you know, he was put in place by and created by the very people who are now trying to destroy the United States. And everything about Biden, every ridiculous thing you see with Biden is only amplified because they're trying, and the same thing with Pelosi and the rest of them, they're literally trying to turn the United States into a laughing stock. Now, I'm not saying that China's not helping the process along. I'm not saying that the Chinese aren't taking advantage of the situation. They are absolutely doing both of those things. Are they the prime driving force behind this, though? That I don't that I don't buy. And I've been studying the Chinese for a long time, and I don't consider them nearly as aggressive as certain, you know, uh, certain people that I interact with all the time. Like I have a, you know, my, my partner who, you know, we had on the show um, uh, over the summer, um, Dexter White, is much more of a China hawk than I am. He's much more worried about the, you know, about the Chinese than I am. I'm much more worried about European commies than Chinese commies because European commies haven't gotten the memo, haven't lived through what it actually looks like to live under communism. Okay. The people in Davos haven't done this yet. Okay. They haven't subjected Western Europe to that. The Russians and the Chinese have, they've gone through struggle sessions. They've seen their, just the, they've seen their, 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 their culture and their, and, and their, and their, their their communities torn apart by this, right? So they have a different perspective on this than the Western Europeans do. Okay, so why there's, there's so much pushback to the European Union within the Eastern European countries, the former Soviet, you know, sort of former you know Warsaw Pact countries like Hungary and you know Poland and the Czech Republic or Czechia uh, um, and, and 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 the rest. So, but understand that Obama is a vandal who hates the United States. When you understand that Obama is a vandal who hates the United States, everything about the Biden administration makes so much more sense. So it doesn't matter if it, you think it's China doing this or Davos doing it. It doesn't matter. It's being implemented. It's being helped along and the, the skid's greased by the actual shadow president. And he's in a fight for his life at this point for control of the Democratic Party, which he's never had control of. Obama has been the, was the first president who was not unequivocally the leader of the party that he represented. Hillary Clinton ran the party while he was president. You don't think that that fight is still going on? I got uh, one uh, Igor Danchenko's uh, indictment from by John Durham as evidence of that. There's a massive fight going on between the still between the Clinton wing and the Obama wing of the of the Democratic Party. And then you have the Soros wing led by the squad. And now you have a three-headed hydra of bad ideas all sniping at each other. 
Yeah, no. And real, real quick before we move on, mm-hmm. enter the Fed and what we've seen going on um, with another Fed board chair stepping down. Um, right. Help, help us, so, help us glean what's going on there. I, I only have, I have very, a lot of Rumsfeldian known unknowns or unknown knowns or however you, he put it. Donald Rumsfeld all those years ago. There's, there's what we know, and then there's what we don't know, right? Yes. Um, the known unknowns. The um, it's very cller that Obama wants Vale Brainerd to be FOMC chair. Whether he can pull that off politically or not is is up in the air. So the next best thing is to hack all of the support out from underneath Powell, who clearly went to war with the ECB in June, yes, when he raised the RRP rate, the reverse repo rate to five basis points, draining the world of one point three trillion dollars with the base money in four months. A month after he told Christine Lagarde to go stuff it when she said at a, ma- at, a, at a major meeting in May between all the major central bankers where she got up there and grandstanded and said, oh, it's time for us to coordinate central policy, central bank policy to combat climate change. And Powell looked at her and went, no, it's not. My job is my dual mandate to the people of the United States. Stable prices and full employment, not climate change. And. Mrs. Lagarde got really angry in public over that. And since then, there's been a concerted effort for the first time ever we've seen an actual honest-to-God palace coup and uh, at the Fed. And no less a, an analyst than Daniel DiMartino Booth, the former uh, advisor to Richard Fisher at the Dallas Fed, mentioned this, has been mentioning this in interview after interview that she's been doing. She's like, I've never seen anything like this before. And it's very clear that there's a kind of takeover happening within the Federal Reserve. Now, the odds are that Powell is probably going to get reappointed, okay? Because politically, there's no way they can get Brainerd through the Senate, all right? So what, what Obama is doing now is putting pressure on all of these other people to leave the scene, get rid of all the other hawks on the Federal Reserve Board in order to try and slow down delay and, you know, and, and keep policy as coordinated with the other um, central banks as possible, because what I think is happening here, and I think is very clearly what's happening, is that we now have policy bifurcation. That since September, since, um, September of 2011, when the central banks, me, when the central banks broke the gold bull market and announced their $500 billion slush fund to use liquidity pooled across all the central banks, when they started coordinating policy in 2011, we've had that has been the background of central bank policy globally for the last 10 years. And since Lehman Brothers and since that time, the Federal Reserve has been the central bank of the world, not of the United States. And Powell has been slowly but surely taking that role for the, the Federal Reserve back to its original mandate. And that's what's so important about this. And once you understand it from that perspective, because look, at the end of the day, it is the ECB that can go bankrupt. It's The ECB is not like the Federal Reserve. It's not the same institution. There's different rules, different laws. And I want to get into the specifics. The ECB can absolutely go bankrupt. The Federal Reserve can't. The Federal Reserve can just trash the currency. 
it, okay. it is it is interesting to see this battle go on behind the scenes almost with the headlines. And it is clear right. in your analysis that you've been talking about for some time now, for many months, yes. uh, that that support for Powell is being almost taken away, whether it's forced resignations or uh, these uh, corruption charges. With, with they're, mm-hmm. they're corrupt every year and every month. It's, it's when someone decides to point the finger, you know, think about the levers that are finally acting yes. upon um, that corruption. It's to remove that support from Powell. It's a very mm-hmm. interesting um, behind-the-scenes war that's playing out. And I'm I'm hopeful. I, I typically am not the type of person to root for the Fed, but at this, no, at this point in time, um, it's a very important battle going on, and it seems that Powell, uh, for at least this point in time, is on our side. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the way I've been reading it for months now. And, uh, I, I, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I, I don't think I am. I've been saying this for since June and every day I, I, I become more and more, I become more right about this and everybody else becomes more wrong about it. So again, we're talking about, I don't hate to bust my hand, pat myself on the back or anything. I have been saying this. I did a big, long podcast series over the summer explaining what happened on June 16th, episode 75 through 77 of the Gold Ghosts and Guns podcast. You can listen to those about two hours worth of material to understand what I'm talking about. Because understand that I don't believe that Davos is any kind of singular organism. That's the mistake everybody makes. It's not. It's a whole bunch of different group of people getting together and trying to best, you know, keep feathering their own nests. And once it becomes clear, once it became clear to certain factions within that group that, you know, what's coming down the pike isn't going to work for them. Oh, they start leaving. They start jumping off. Cartels always fail. And the Davos crowd is the cartel of oligarchs, right? But cartels always fail because of the enlightened self-interest of the individual members, which don't necessarily always align. And anybody who makes the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the, I want to say amateurish or adolescent argument, oh, they're all just corrupt and blah, blah, blah. This is the typical, you know, um, uh, knee-jerk libertarian reaction to all this stuff. It's really annoying because it's actually what keeps libertarians from breaking into the political mainstream because they just sound like a bunch of children. As opposed to doing real, honest-to-God, hard, real politic work to understand what's happening and use the, use the understandings of Austrian economics and libertarian theory to analyze the situation and see why these fights are going to turn out the way you think they're going to turn out. That's a far more powerful and far more useful and far more actionable analysis. And that's what I've dedicated what I do to. And it's unfortunately, it's also led me into areas where I don't have time to go look for other things because I have to spend all my time doing that work. You yes. understand what I mean? Okay. So at the end of the day, there's only so much bandwidth. And I think that that's where I'm best. I personally am best served. I'm saying this to certain to, to certain members of my audience that don't, you know, that would like me to, you know, answer about a question about this, this or that. I can't do that. I don't have the bandwidth for it anymore. Yeah. And we so. are, we are certain, you are certainly flooded in that zone right now. And we want you doing what you're passionate about. Um, really right. quick, that three part series that you mentioned, there was mm-hmm. tremendous value in that. And what I liked about that three part series was it almost set the board. It set definitions. It really laid things out clearly from your mm-hmm. perspective on yep. what, uh, you know, how you see the world moving forward in your analysis and in reverse. What what were the podcast series, the episode numbers again for the audience? 75, 76, and 77. 
Okay, and I will have those linked in the uh, show notes. Um, yep. And a Please. very valuable series to listen to if you liked that particular talk that you don't hear that kind of analysis you don't hear in the mainstream media and it's hard to even find in the alternative press. But I'm going to take a break right now and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about something fun. We're going to lower Tom's blood pressure and talk about something fun as he's heating whatever he's heating to uh, yes. get ready for this discussion. Thank you. You found me. Thanks for finding me, the Conservative Hippie Podcast. The goal of the show is to be interactive, so if you have a complaint, some feedback, an idea, or just want to give me a shout-out, you can reach me at theconservativehippiepodcast at gmail.com. Hashtag, that's a mouthful. You can also reach me at tw- on Twitter, at jfrat. The goal is to make this podcast interactive with you and grow this thing together. I do have an action item for you to do right now. Right now, I want you to share this podcast. Whether you're on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're at, share it with a friend, share it with an enemy, help spread the word. All right, back to the show. All right, and we're back. Want to get to the meat and potatoes of this discussion, and it's a fun talk. Tom and I spent some time together this summer, and one of the things we're both passionate about is movies and art and uh, the themes and struggle of this uh, presentation of culture that we all consume and the different interpretations we can all receive from it. Well, one thing that we discovered was we were both extremely excited about the, at that time, upcoming release of the Dune movie. And that has happened. Tom has seen it many times, including on the big screen. I've watched it many times, not including the big screen yet, unfortunately. But Tom, let's let's get into this Dune. And before we start, sure. I do want to give the audience and you a little bit of perspective on where we're coming from with this. You mm-hmm. have been into Dune since you read the books by Frank Herbert, okay? Mm-hmm. I have been into Dune since I watched the David Lynch movie. I have not read the books. So we're coming from this from two different perspectives. Mm. One, a guy that has the original movie, uh, interestingly enough, released in 1984. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's me. And we have yourself, who has a little bit more depth of the Dune universe, has ha- coming from the book. Uh, I believe you disliked the 1984 movie. And now mm. this upcoming yes. release. So that's kind of the person. I just want to lay out that perspective that I am. That's I come, very important. Yeah, I come from more of a movie base and you come from more of a book base. Yep. That's, it's very true. Cause, um, and I, and by the way, uh, Jay, I absolutely recommend you either read or listen to the audiobook thereof, of the original book. From what I understand, I think my, my, my wife has actually has the audiobook that the audiobook presentation of Dune is fantastic. They use, they do an entire cast to do everybody's inner voices and all the rest of it. So um, Dune is a very complex narrative uh, that no movie will possibly do it justice. I don't even think I, I, it would take a, a proper, I think 12 hour miniseries, yes. you know, on something like HBO max or whatever yes. to do the first book properly. And that's even to fill out, you know, some scenes that are kind of left off the net, you know, are, uh, even on the cutting room floor of the book itself. Cause the book, you know, there are some, there, this, you'll realize that there are significant time jumps um, from between the first half of the book and the second half of the book. Um, and, uh, and we'll see that when the movie comes out, when the, the second part of 
of uh, Villeneuve's uh, film, because it really is going to wind up being one movie, um, comes out in 2020, October, they say in October 2023, okay. Which, is okay, so, all, which is outstanding, by the way. So first thing, first thing, um, sure. you, you thought that there it was up in the air whether or not the second movie would get made. Of course, it's been announced now, but yep. I, I never thought there was any oppor- any possibility the second, third movie wouldn't get made and that it was possible, possibly marketing that was leaving it up in the mm. air. And w- after watching the first movie, it's like, of course, of course the second... They, it's it had to be made it had to be planned from the beginning this wasn't no, a actually, matri- it really wasn't this, this wasn't really a matrix wasn't. situation where the matrix was a standalone i don't right. see this dune movie being a standalone like that no it, what it was was it was a 75 to 80% chance that they were going to get the second they didn't get the funds to make the second half of the movie but after blade runner 2049 Bill those previous movie flopped at the box office and they spent 250 million dollars on the most one of the most gorgeous and beautiful art films ever made that says a lot really about, is. says a lot about society that that was a flop that was that was such a that was such a good movie for, yeah, it really is. for a supposed remake it was its own movie that stood alone um no, it and un- it was tremendous right but this but this is this is the thing bill Nuv has never made a film that was that successful at the box office so they took a and i will i will say this it only cost $175 million, this version of this first half of Dune, which I, when I heard that the budget was that small, I was shocked, especially given the, the, the scope and um, the, um, the immensity of the visuals. When, when Chris Nolan, Nolan when, when a person no less than Chris Nolan praises Villeneuve directly and says, you know, I couldn't see where the CGI ended and the sets began. I'm like, that's high praise. Yes. Okay. That's really, really high praise. And you got to give it up to whoever the, you know, whatever Eastern European country he farmed the uh, the CGI work out to because is impressive. And they they filmed it in, in Hungary where the costs were cheap and a variety of other things. But there was significant worry in Warner Brothers, especially at that time, as to whether or not because look, if the movie had failed, the movie failed, and they just would have gone, okay, well, we're not going to get the second half. But I mean, this that is the reality of it. I mean, if everybody just came out and the movie stunk. And it wasn't a good adaptation and people didn't like it and it didn't do well at the box office and there was no buzz about it. And the audience scores were poor. Then, yeah, they weren't going to make the second movie. But Warner Brothers knew by about June of this year that they were making the second film. And then to your point, the marketing of, well, we're going to hold off the announcement of it until after the movie finally comes out. Because they had their audience test scores back in June as to whether or not this movie was any good. Yeah. And they knew it was going to satisfy the existing fan base, which should be enough to justify, you know, $400 million at the box office globally, which is enough to greenlight the sequel. And then they've got, you know, a potential franchise after that. Because remember, HBO Max also is, is developing a television series as well in, the, in this universe. So we'll see. Yeah. The other good news on this before we, before we get into the meat and potatoes of it is that um, Villeneuve is absolutely desirous of doing a three-movie set going all the way through the end of Dune Messiah, which having reread the books, the first four books recently, last year, you absolutely have to do Dune Messiah if you're going to tell the, the first half. If you're going to tell Dune, you kind of have to tell Dune Messiah. And as an older man, I understand that. As a young man, when I read it the first time, I didn't get it. But I get it now. And it's absolutely necessity. To, it's an absolute necessity to tell the end of, really the end of Paul's story. 
So I have a bit of an advantage. Uh, Tom does a uh, live stream on YouTube every Tuesday night. Well, most Tuesday nights, sometimes Fridays. And he did a live stream on his interpretation of Dune and his thoughts on Dune. So I have a bit of an advantage in the fact that I know some of Tom's opinions. And we differ in some ways. So you Mm -hmm. said something earlier that is my strong opinion, that it should have been some sort of 12-hour our miniseries, because the one takeaway um, where we're in disagreement is I thought this movie was a bit rushed. I can see the limiting budget in the fact of that there were some story holes, if you will, not sure. as not as bad as the original 1984 Dune, where where it almost mm-hmm. the entire movie is inside uh, inside the character's head as he as yep. he speaks his thoughts. Right, it's almost yep. narrated. Which from is thoughts. which which by the way is a nod to the way Dune is written. Dune, the, the book, is written with a lot of interior monologue, okay? Like 90% of the story is given as interior monologue between the characters. And it shifts narrative focus all over the place. Like, and it shifts, narrative focus shifts from, from paragraph to paragraph. It's really important. Like I said, it's actually almost better to listen to it as an audio book. Yes. Because all the world building is done within the characters' heads. So you, I, I, I'm dead serious when I say it. it's, it's not the easiest read in the world in that in, in that respect. So, um, so it was necessary. And I know that Herbert had huge influence over the David Lynch production demanding that it be told a certain way. Okay. And, okay. and, so, and, and you and I, we, we differ a little bit in that I, I appreciate David Lynch, um, movies like Eraserhead, Blue Velvet, um, sure. Dune, where there is an obviousness of his, um, director's hand, right? He he sure. loves himself some obvious thematic work, and he almost mm-hmm. drenches um, right. the screen in color, tone, vibe, sure. if you will. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I know from your live stream that you didn't appreciate that with the original Dune movie. Um, well, I thought it was terrible. This one, this one was shot completely different, which I which I love um, a little bit more. You know, they used that modern uh, technology to create more of a realistic setting. Um, on, in this mm-hmm. in this universe, if you will, yes. No, I again, I I am not a fan of the of Lynch's first film, uh, Lynch's film. I'm not a huge David Lynch fan personally, and this this is coming from a guy who like I I have really esoteric tastes in movies. I mean, I've, I've seen I think I even mentioned this before. I, I've seen most of everything Ken Russell's ever made, and like if you've seen any of Ken Russell's movies from the '70s, you know how could I be you know how could I take that crazy. That, that crazy Englishman and then have a problem with David Lynch's work. Right. But I don't know. There's something about Lynch's work that just never grabbed me. And, um, and once well, I got, once I grew, once I grew beyond that, I kind of grew beyond that kind of storytelling, um, as a, as a consumer and that I just never went back to it. And, um, and the older I get, the less, uh, I'm interested in really convoluted, um, Frankly, convoluted yeah, story. Yeah, if from so, a, from an outside perspective and a friend, you like puzzles, right? You like putting together puzzles. And David Lynch is extremely obvious. He doesn't. He he leans into um, he leans into the irony and the I, I, themes. I, I don't think that, I don't think that that's I don't think that I don't think that that's actually my problem with Lynch. I just think that there's I just think that the um, I, I I don't know this. 
it, it's more about, I don't know, I, I, I should probably give it a, I should probably back up and say, I really need to do a David Lynch thing. Let's just leave it there. I don't want to get into a thing about David Lynch because I don't yeah. know that the man's work well enough to speak intelligently about it, well, to be honest with you. It would be fair to him. I do know Villeneuve's work well, or at least the four of the movies of his movies that I've seen. And I think they're all, um, I think they're all uniquely interesting. Well, and let, let's get in, into that in, in, specific in, in modern times in this movie and your philosophies on the arc of the hero. We have some disagreement sure. in this set. Why don't you lay out, you know, some of the recent films that you've talked about um, this arc of the hero um, and how it's applied and what you see within modern times and how it's represented in Dune. Sure. Uh, we in the, in the post star Wars universe of movie making, the Joe, the Campbellian standard hero's journey thing that you can read Christopher Vogel's uh, book on the subject. I can't, God, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but for any budding screenwriter knows the book I'm talking about. It's a book by Christopher Vogel about the, uh, about the, 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 the hero cycle, myth making or whatever. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Great book. I've read it. Yada, yada, yada. It'll give you all the things that you, it gives you the nuts and bolts of how to fill in the Mad Lib of doing the, uh, of doing the, 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 the hero's journey. Right. Um, we live in that world where we're expecting all of that, right? Every, every story has some version of that layered onto whatever the movie is. It doesn't matter if we're talking about Revenge of the Nerds or we're talking about you know, the latest Star Wars movie or the latest Marvel movie. When it's done, when it's done kind of unconsciously, you know, as a, as just because we've all been steeped in this type of myth, uh, mythic, mythopoetic and, and heroic storytelling. And it's, it's a natural outgrowth of the story that someone is trying to tell. It comes across and it, it works really well, right? When it's used simply to ensure that they get a three-star, you know, review from the, uh, from the critics and they can get a decent audience test, audience test score, it's not art, it's propaganda. And, that's, and that describes to me 75, maybe even 80% of the Marvel films under Kevin Feige. And so, and my, and my fundamental problem with the Marvel films is that they're just kind of hollow representations or hollow simulacra of great storytelling. And, and, and then there's if I, Dune. If I could interject, you're talk, <laughs> if sure. I could interject for the audience's sake, you're talking about the reluctant hero, you know, thinking about. Yeah, we're talking about the, we're talking about the Luke Skywalker archetype or the Harry Potter archetype or, you know, they're all, and, and, and even the Katniss Everdeen archetype from the Hunger Games. And don't get me wrong. I think those are all excellent archetypes. I think they're all excellent characters. And, you know, at, at, at times and other times, really good stories. Like, you know, I have my problems with individual Star Wars movies. I have some problems with the, the arc of the Harry Potter films. And I have some problems with the arc of the Hunger Games films. But, or the Hunger Games stories. But, that being said, I think they're all really valuable um, coming-of-age uh, heroes, heroes' journeys, without a doubt. And then there's Dune. And Dune isn't that story. This is why Dune Messiah is so important. Dune is that story and a massive social commentary on putting your faith in that character. The charismatic hero. Okay, It's a commentary on all those things. And I, I can see it from the ground up that Villeneuve understood, understands that. I even believe that David Lynch understood it. I just didn't like Lynch's execution. Okay. It, it, there's a, there's a point where I can see an artist working his tail off to create something brilliant and something beautiful and just failing. Okay. I think Chris Nolan failed with inception, for example. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, but I don't think he failed with tenant. Like the more I watch tenant, the more I'm like, Oh my God, 
Tenet's brilliant. Um, even though it's also really odd. It right? is it is interesting that Tenet actually uh, landed on the complexity that he tried to create with Inception. Exactly. Inception always felt like a draft to me. No, also, Inception is a draft of him doing a Philip K. Dick story, an adaptation of Philip K. Dick's Ubik, which is, as you well know personally, no, is my favorite story in the English language, other than maybe the Bible, right? So anybody attempting to take on that 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 material and not land not sticking the landing is going to get rough marks for me but yeah. i've seen ubik done a number of different times now it's why I'll, it'll never be filmed by the way it's because it's been filmed as the matrix and vanilla sky and jacob's ladder and you know inception and there's like i have two dozen movies out there where people have used the ubik archetype and tried to create that story so i'll never do it and i and i and i and, and i and, and I, I get it, and that's fine. It's kind of like a lot of early Philip K. Dick stories about androids. The Terminator like encapsulated all of those early stories into one movie, right? And then all of the early work from uh, about you know the androids becoming sentient and all the stuff that 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 Dick played with in his early short stories and his early novels. Like we, we can't do those stories as good as they are because James Cameron did it with the Terminator. So we have that you know as as audience members, we're now jaded to that type of storytelling, um, and. What I find fascinating about Dune, the more I, I, I study it, this is the more I realize that it is one level above the thing that it is that we've all been conditioned to think that that's the story we were getting. And I've watched a lot of YouTube reviews and commentaries from millennials who went in cold and did not understand what Dune was about. And then when they didn't get what they were expecting, they faulted the movie for it. Like, well, he's obviously, Paul Atreides is obviously a hero in the mold of Luke Skywalker and Harry Potter. And we're like, no, he's not. What movie did you just watch? Because Luke never had a premonition of like being gutted and, yeah. and, and starting, a, and starting a, a, a jihad again, that would, that, that would sweep across the galaxy, you know, a universe destroying jihad across the galaxy. Like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And neither did Harry Potter. Well, just on on its face, they're they're completely different. And the fact that you're talking about what we're conditioned to is this reluctant hero, almost this right. scrappy character who came up through the social classes to mm-hmm. then rule the rebels, if you will. Whereas right. Dune sets out with this uh, child of aristocracy, this mm-hmm. child who's been trained since birth for this moment, who has yep. to stare this moment in the face and accept it. Yes. It's not just through enough just from birth. Understand that the Benny Jesuit have been building him yes. for hundreds of generations. They've been doing a breeding program for eight, you know, six thousand years, like to land this moment. And then the arrogance, this is like played out in the in the scene early on between Reverend Mahayam and Lady Jessica, where Jessica gets dressed down for her arrogance of believing that she can create the Quizatara. That she had the, you know, like the temerity to think that she had the, the, it's like, that's what, but it's, it's actually that audacity. And that's it's another thing that Herbert's saying is it's almost that, that audacity that is what creates the, po- the possibility of the catastrophic, you know, leap forward, as it were. You can't just, it, it, you know, whatever, however you want to put it. So. I, be- I believe we've got go. Camille, Camille, uh, Tom's yeah. wife in the background, uh, shouting out from the bleachers and helping Tom along. Is that is that right? Is that Camille yes. in the room with the hubris yes, shout is. out? Yes, it is. All right. It's always wonderful for Tom's wife to make an appearance in anything he does. 
Um, so, okay, so let's let's get into the making of the movie because I thought it was rushed. If 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 you want to look at 1984 mm. Dune from from my foundational perspective, that was the problem with it was just everything was rushed along, and it's sure. this story that you know you're just shuttled through, and you knew the universe was much bigger. You knew the plot had so much more stories. I thought that happened again in this movie. That's why you and I desire this 12 to 14 hour miniseries because at times it does um, it does almost rush forward through um, through the plot. Well, I agree. Uh, I think that Villeneuve was under the directive from Warner Brothers, as always, keep the runtime under two and a half hours. So you then have to, and this is just the practice, understanding the practicalities of movie making and understanding the practicalities of that at the end of the day, these things are always compromises. And that if they ever aspire to be art, given the millions of fingers that are in this pie and the millions of chefs that are, you know, making decisions here, like that you ever get anything approaching art is a miracle. So I always go in without that expectation. And then, I, and then when I get it, I'm pleasantly surprised. Because I just know, like, so the, for a two and a half hour cut of the first half of the book, Dune, this is a phenomenal achievement. Is there a three hour cut of this movie that's better? Oh, absolutely. Is there a three hour and 30 minute cut of this movie that's better? Maybe. Is there a four hour cut of this movie that's better? No. So this is where I think I, I do disagree. I think as a, as someone who's written screenplays, not published, but I've written screenplays on contract that have never gotten published. I've analyzed films now for 25 years since I've been, since I was originally contracted to do this. Like I now watch the process and I understand that there's the story that a certain segment of the fan base would like to see told. And then there's the story you have to tell and, and having, and then of course, having a partner in the newsletter, who's a former professional editor, I, we have these conversations all the time, right? So about, you know, what you have to do in order just to get the thing shaped into a particular um, unit. So while Dune left me wanting more, I didn't also, that doesn't mean that what they presented me was not enough. Yes. If you understand what I mean. Yes, I, okay? I, I do understand. Uh, because I do believe that there's going to be a three hour cut of this movie that will show up on Blu-ray or on HBO Max in a few months or whatever. I, I do believe that that's the, that's going to happen. And so, and there's a couple of scenes from the book that I know that if they were to add that, that in, it would beef up the guild, it, the spacing guild. It would be, beef up, um, certain other aspects like Thufra Hawat, the, the, the Atreides house Mentat. I think his part was mostly left on the cutting room floor. I think there's certain aspects of the story that could be brought back in that would only add to the, um, add to the the, the film yeah but with... I, I remember i remember just one one last point it's like when i watched when i go back and i watched the, the 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 lord of the rings films right the three-hour cut of fellowship of the ring i saw nine times in the theaters when i saw the extended cut i was like that's the movie i wanted to see originally as much as i love the original cut of the movie to me that is the cut of fellowship of the ring you watch you don't watch the three-hour cut you watch the three-hour and 45-minute cut because that cut makes Boromir a better character. It makes his it makes his death at the end of the story better. It makes Aragorn a better character. It sets everybody up. It makes the whole book, a whole film better. But the extended cut of the two towers, the theatrical cut was too quick and too jerky, and I didn't like it as much. And the three hour and forty five minute cut that they put out the extended cut is too long. There's a three hour and twenty minute cut of the two towers. I think that would be perfect, which we'll never see, right? 
but to understand what I mean, that that the story is there's you can make a more complete story and have a worse film. You can have a better you can have more plot, but you can't have a better story. If you understand what I mean, there's it's a, the edit is a very subtle thing. And I just want to make that point abundantly clear, um, because I do believe, you know, we live in an age where we can have multiple versions of these films. And we'll eventually we'll get to pick the one we really like. Yeah. Um, so uh, quick, uh, quick point on what I didn't like. Um, quick point on what I did. Um, sure. One of the one of the very specific things that I didn't like about the movie and where I thought it was rushed and where I thought we could see so much more. And what I didn't like as far as storytelling was the way the doctor like completely set. He was the he was the uh, he was the responsibility for everything that happened yes. to turn the plot around, you know. He lowered the shields. Mm-hmm. He took yeah. out. He took out the Dr. leader. Is important. And it was just. It was just too much, too quick from my perspective. I, I agree. What no, I, I agree. I think that. I think that. I think Dewey is a character who needed to be set up better. Yeah. What I did like, um, and and it kind of goes to my my basis that this movie was never going to be a standalone. It was always a setup for the next one. Sure. And the next one is the Baron in this movie. I almost from, from watching 1984 Dune, this movie almost seemed like a prequel to me because there was no sister in the movie. And we got glimpses of the Baron who's going to star more. I thought that, that whoever did the Baron and the way that Villeneuve shot the Baron, it was oh. almost like Marlon Brando, in Apocalypse Now, it was it was it was really good. Yeah, and it was. The Skull, it was Skull Skarsgård was uh, played Baron Harkonnen. Uh, Brando in Apocalypse Now was absolutely a um, an inspiration for their interpretation of the Baron. It had to be. Oh, it was. I mean, Villeneuve talks about it. I've, I've watched interviews with okay. him. Okay, well, you, you, you talk about well, then that's it. great so, for so, so, for someone like me that didn't know that information. It sure, came across absolutely. very clearly. Oh yeah, no, it, it you know the minute I, I saw the Baron on screen, and I love the the introduction of the Baron where he's shrouded in mist. We don't even know who we can't. We don't even get a clear outline. His it, I, I've seen the movie three times. Once up on the big screen, which you absolutely have to see because it's overwhelming, um, and then twice on the small screen, and um, and. Uh, the Baron's entrance is is unnerving in a way that is it it's it, this is where this is where visuals have more power than exposition. Movies are a cinematic experience. They are the marriage of images, words, and music, and to create emotional concept. They're not like old movies, which were just basically films of stage plays, right? All done on sound stages, blah blah blah, blah and they were blocked and, and, and acted as if we were all, uh, you know, just film. They were just recording people going through a play. Right. And plays are, are different. And the, so old acting, like you go watch the Maltese Falcon, one of my favorite movies, you know, in the top five of my favorite films of all time, it's still really jarring from a modern pers- moviegoers perspective, because it's a different type of filmmaking. We weren't really in cinema at that point. It was only when we got into Orson Welles with Pacific Kane that we really started to get into cinema. Okay, that's when Welles really started using shadow and lighting and 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 blocking and, and camera and everything else. And obviously Hitchcock was also a um, a, 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 a vanguard, right, in this respect. So and then others. I'm leaving. I could do that for sure, you know, half sure. an hour. I'm not going to do that. So Villeneuve is cut from that cloth of filmmaking. And his, his imagery conveys more story than um, 
then you know we we who like would like some details filled in like and that's also a part of the problem with kind of modern movie audiences as well we are like if you listen to the, a, a lot of younger film uh younger younger um uh, moviegoers and you just read like read comment threads on on youtube or whatever about films and you're like guys you really want everything spelled out for you because are you that are, are you really that autistic that you have to have everything spelled out for you because you can't actually just watch the image and then ask yourself how that makes you feel and then what that implies because that's what watching a movie is all about it's you know it, it takes a and, and a film and a filmmaker like Villeneuve absolutely you know wants you to do that so i absolutely recommend again to everybody listening go see dune in the theater before it leaves because and see it on the biggest screen you can i saw it in rpx theater in in gainesville florida as opposed to going to imax um that was big enough for me and you know with the rumbling seats and the big huge you know and the and, and all of it and it was overwhelming and when i got done i was emotionally raw in a way that i, I wasn't expecting because and I was like, I just had to sit there for five minutes and just kind of, because the movie wore me down. Yeah. It wore me, it, 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 it wore down all of my analytic, um, just taking, cons, you know, taking my, everything my analytic in, armor, taking everything yeah, and in just, all, all the inputs. And then I was, and I, and I wasn't, I wasn't a blubbering mass of jelly. Like I was at the end of seeing Schindler's list for the first time where I literally cried to the theaters at three o'clock in the morning for 45 minutes before I could stand up and, and drive home. Okay, first time I saw Schindler's List, I literally was 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 a puddle on the ground. Um, never did I have that kind of reaction to a film. Well, let me let me um, let me bring this forward. Let me bring this forward. Some something right. I didn't like about the movie. Uh, I, I really appreciate Dave Bautista as an actor. Oh, yeah. I thought he was too forced in this particular film. But what what I liked about it. So one negative, one positive. Um, to try to bring it bring it back to modern times, I really sure. enjoyed the way that the film subtly discussed time in relation to our own timeline and the concept mm -hmm. of death. And, yep. and it had a lot of very subtle, um, a subtle discussion, if you will, about mm -hmm. um, the value of life and where it is within the timeline of everything and mm -hmm. how these cultures um, think about it. And I don't think we think about it enough um, within our modern ego society. And that's coming mm -hmm. back in our modern, that, that's coming back in our culture. What, yeah, did, what did you glean from it? Because I know you've got a lot of thoughts on how it can be interpreted to our modern times in our own political struggle. Well, what I found really interesting, let's, 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 talk, let's go back to what I was just, just talking about in terms of, of the, uh, the cinematography. Uh, notice how Dune, which is supposed to be a desert, was the most colorful thing in the, in the film. That my my, I, I, my daughter actually mentioned to me. She's like, when we got done with it, she loved it. By the way, and my daughter's a, a budding artist, and and uh, she said, I was amazed. I never expected them to be able to get any kind of. I was wondering. She was like, I'm, How are they going to make the desert interesting? Because it's just yellow. And then she's like, Oh no, it's not just yellow. And you know the subtle use of color timing and and whatnot. And then you look at the the, the houses. You know, um, Solicis Secundus, uh, Gidi Prime, even Caladan, all desaturated, all, um, all almost black and white and desaturated, almost like we were watching a, a Zack Snyder movie, for, for Christ's sake. And so, and this is the subtle use of color in film is a, is a, is a clear opportunity for a filmmaker to uh, manipulate your emotions, right? Um, and um, so, I, you know, just 
and I think that that was done on purpose. Yeah, the barren, the, the supposed barren wasteland is actually an oasis of life, whereas exactly. the, the modern structures of technology and empire are actually absent um, absent that same, uh, juxtaposed to sense, this teeming of life. Sense of, sense of life and, yes, yes, exactly. And so there's Arrakis, supposedly, you know, the harshest environment in the world, and then you go and look at, you know, the, the Sardaukar training on Seleucus Secundus, and you're like, yeah, I wouldn't want to live there. I'd yeah. rather live on Arrakis. Yeah. Right. So um, th- that's and that's what I mean by that's where world building and cinema can do the work, do the heavy lifting for you in terms of story where right. you don't need to be told anything about Seleucus Secundus. You've just been showed it, shown it, you know, and as a, and as a former poet, you know, where the first rule of poetry is show, don't tell. Um, and really, that's the first rule of art, to be honest with you. Is show don't tell. I mean, that's what you're. That's what you're supposed to be doing. And if, as a filmmaker, you're supposed to show us what's what this world is, and as opposed to tell us what it is. And that's part of the reason why I don't like the original uh, Lynch film. But I understand that David Lynch was, as I said at the beginning, was under tremendous pressure from Frank Herbert to tell the the story in a particular way, because he just because you know Herbert was a writer, not a filmmaker. And so again, like everything else, um, you know, the original Dune, even the four hour cut of it, which I've seen you know, doesn't create that sense of cinema that um, Villeneuve creates more cinema in the first 15 minutes than Lynch does in four hours. And I, I, and I, and I, and I, and I say that knowing that David Lynch was, is a hell of a filmmaker, even if it's his work is something that's not to my taste, you know, I can separate my opinion of the guy's work or, you know, whether it affects me or not with, you know, whether it's, it's good work or not. Those are different. Plenty of filmmakers out there that are great filmmakers whose work I don't like. I said something about you liking puzzles and therefore you wouldn't like Lynch. You've said two things now that kind of back that up and the fact that Lynch is uh, manipulative with his uh, use of uh, color, tone, theme, and he uh, is a little obvious with it as well. So you know, sure, it's all it's all very clear. But yeah, but, but I like Terry Gilliam too, and he ain't, and and he and he ain't actually subtle. Yeah. There ain't nothing about a Terry Gilliam movie that's subtle, you know. So, so, like, so, so bring this, I know you've got more, I'm trying to extrapolate this to modern society and this theme that you've captured right. within Doom, Dune and Paul's ascension, if you will, and this, sure. the culture behind uh, in this universe as well. Yeah, well, so, well, Dune is like every good, is like, like every great story, right? Which is that it's ultimately a story about institutional collapse. Right. Um, and the blindness and the inadequacy of the existing power political system and the power structures to contain the, the, the chaos of that it has tried to tamp down through um, uh, through oppression and or starvation and privation. And the Fremen are absolutely that. And I, I've written a couple of things about about this, saying that, you know, if you really look at uh, who the Fremen are, you know, in a metaphoric sense, they are the people that are now being marginalized into, you know, uh, being stuck in their homes for not accepting a vaccine or, but it's, it's, it's even deeper than that. It goes deeper, deeper than just what we're seeing today with the vaccine passports and everything. That may be the thing that finally wakes up a lot of people, right? But it may be the straw that breaks the camel's back, but let's not kid ourselves here. Like those that value individualism and value the individual as a political unit, have been um, uh, pushed to the fringes of society for, well, frankly, for the last 125 years since the birth of the progressive movement in the United States in the late late 19th century. Like, 
like individualism has been under attack as a conceit for over a century. And we are, we are now, I think, reaching a crescendo of a multiplicity of cycles of human history. Every 85 years or so, humanity goes crazy and there's, you know, worldwide wars and all sorts of horrible things happen. Societies go through 85-year cycles, be it, call it chondritiaf cycles or, uh, or the fourth turning or whatever metaphor for this you want to use. They're all variations on the same analysis. So, pardon, pardon Kamina in the background. She's, she's trying to protect us from somebody, from a, a deer out in the woods. So, um, when you when you look at it that way, Dune is absolutely that story. And it's also, it's, it's maybe even a bigger story than that because it's also at the same time telling you, Hey, we don't, uh, we don't even have the possibility of a Luke Skywalker or a Harry Potter to help us get through to the end of this, get through this, that the person who's going to lead us through is going to be someone like Paul who is ultimately going to be flawed, and because the uh, because the, the the dichotomy between those with power and those without power is so great, when those without power realize is that the they have been compressed and beaten down far enough, they are also now individually individually unbelievably powerful. Because when people lose everything. They, and they have nothing left to lose, that's when they are at their most powerful. And the Fremen are absolutely a, a metaphor for that. Okay? And these are individual people who, on their own, are greater than, than any other, in terms of personal power and, 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 and conviction, greater than everybody else in the Dune universe, including the Bene Gesserit, including, you know, all of them. And you're saying, okay, now there's, there's tens of millions of them. And the Harkonnens and the Emperor think there's fifty thousand. Yes, and that's how blind they are, and that's where they're. That's where this this that's where this story really begins to take on tremendous um, um, symbolic and metaphoric weight. And I think it's unique in that respect because, you know, Star Wars and Harry Potter don't, and even you know, to, don't quite do this. Okay, I love them. I, I, you know how big a Star Wars fan I'm. I think actually, it's the Hunger Games is probably a better, um, is a, probably even a better metaphor. Like District Twelve in the Hunger Games is the closest thing to, um, to you know, Arrakis that we have in modern young adult fiction. Yeah, you know, Star, Star Wars, it never brought in, it showed the politics, but it never quite um, gave the politics any depth. No, it really didn't. I mean, and and not and, and the original film they couldn't because he didn't know he was going to be able to make the films two and three, and he focused on he focused on Luke Skywalker, he focused on Luke's story, which is what he should do in those films, and that was the story that was the shape of the story that he, and that's the story he wanted to tell. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. Every every decision as an artist is a, you know it's a trade off, which you know you have to make decisions in this life. Everything is an opportunity cost. You know, it's the first thing that economics, you know, economics teaches you for every decision you make today is a decision you can't make with you can't you've foregone making the, every other possible decision to, to do within that time span. Right. I'm recording this podcast with you today. I could be doing something else with my time. I could be cleaning my guns. I could be hanging out with my dog. I could be writing an article. I could be doing anything else. I choose to do this. So it, it's, that means that all those other things are opportunity costs. 
Now I'm not saying that I'm, you know, it's, it's, I'm not passing judgment. You know, it just is what it is. No, but, so, but in the difference between the stories, what, what I really right. have been waiting for and what I appreciate about Dune and how you're trying to draw into this more modern times is it is, it is a broader look, not just at Paul and this character, but culture and the political structure of the, oh, within this universe. And, and, and it can be applied to our modern times. I think Dune actually, if Dune had come out when it was originally scheduled to come out, it would have flopped. Hmm. In October of 2020, it would have flopped. Not because of the pandemic. Say there's say there's no COVID. Yeah. Right? Say they don't push the they don't push the pawn. They, they don't push the, the narrative this far. They don't press to for checkmate against the people that hard in the, over in, in you know in, in, in March of 2020. Right? Say they don't do that. Do you think Dune has the same cultural relevance in 2020, October 2020, that it has today in October of 2021, a year later, when now they're pushing to marginalize an entire, you know, 40% of the population of the United States? Yeah. Like, do you, th- you see? So, you know, like, it, it's, it's interesting that, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I know why they pushed it back a year. And Bill Niv said, I'm really happy I got an extra year. It gave me more time to finish the movie. Because the movie wouldn't have been finished it, if you thought that you know what you saw on last month or last week was you know too rushed or unfinished or this or that or whatever. Just imagine you know with having a, a year less or realistically speaking six months less of post production time and editing and shaping and, and and all that right. So they had plenty of time to shape this movie and he used that time i think effectively and then on top of everything else time caught up to the movie and so um and i think that that's you know you can i i I see a certain irony in this right like this is a it's you know and uh, i think it's kind of cool uh when i when i start to think of it from that perspective so yeah it's very i'm i'm looking forward to the next film i i figured that it was always inevitable the way it's set up again uh, such a strong character in the 1984 movie and i'm sure the books the sister who uh may be (sighs) the actual uh uh, result of thousands of years of bene jesuit uh um uh alia wishing (sighs) and uh whatever Uh, (laughs) sorry i'm not i'm I'm not finding i'm not finding my words but they're they're, i I know i know at the end of the movie he sees uh the uh, the person riding the sandworm, he's now uh, with the Fremen. Uh, the Harkonnens are, are sent to destroy, kill them all, basically. And we mm-hmm. have this next, we have this next set this next, ready. If you, yeah, the, the second half of the story is going to accelerate very quickly. Yes. And, um, you know, Dune becomes a story about family and genetics far more in the second half than in the first half. Again, having read the books, and having read them recently and having read them with a very critical eye at this moment in, 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 in history, when Herbert wants, uh, wanted us to read, Herbert was 50 years ahead of his time, right? So even, even for other science fiction writers of the time, Herbert was literally 50 years ahead of where everybody, 45 or 50 years ahead of where everybody else was. He was writing about 2020 in 1965. Everybody, you know, takes the first order, you know, the, the first order approximation goes, uh, goes, Spice is a metaphor for oil, and here's where we are. Much deeper than that. Yes. Because we weren't at a 
point of civilizational of, of an apex of a civilization, uh, you know, an apex point in civilization. We are approaching that now. He was writing at, you know, a kind of a half cycle low if it, in an 85 year cycle, just around that, around that point. And he was very, very, ha- very, very, you know, pr- you know, I hate to use the word prescient um, as to where we were headed. But, but because he studied this history properly, he understood where we were eventually going to go. So, but the, the, um, when you, when you think about that, then you also have to start thinking about, well, he wrote Dune in the early sixties, published it finally in 65 as a book serialized before that, the first a couple of years before that. And then he didn't write Dune Messiah until 1970. And then he didn't write children of Dune until 73 or 74. Those three books together represent the entire arc of this particular story. Okay. They, you can't, whether or not, you know, and there are plenty, I'm sure there's people who are going to listen to this and go, oh, yeah, but, yeah, but the other two books aren't as good. No, they're not. But the whole story is encapsulated in Dune, uh, Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. And I always remember liking Ch- Children of Dune much more than a lot of other people did, even when I read it the first time back in my, when I was in my 20s. Um, and the character of Alia, Paul's, do- uh, Paul's sister, um, is incredibly important. Yes. And... Um, Dune, not only does Dune get all of the, the big societal stuff right, the institutions versus the people, you gotta, it gets all the gender swapping and gender role stuff right. It gets the, gen, it gets the you know, the, we are talking about the Bene Gesserit, like the ultimate, you know, expression of female power, right? We're ta- and, and how it's used. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff that, that's going on in there. And, 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 and Herbert has, you know, put all of that together into one big story that's far more nuanced and, and, and interesting than um, you can encapsulate. I think, well, one, you can encapsulate in any one or two films and two, and you know, even in a, you know, obviously in a one hour podcast. So there's yeah. a lot to talk about there um, and to consider when we go forward. And I, I hope that they actually do all of them yeah, all I, the way through the end of, of children of Dune. I would love to see it. I, I hope so as well. I, I really do. I think when we look back after, um, later editions are released, that this is just going to be the setup. This is just going to be the fan foundational work for the rest rest of the series. I'm looking f- so forward, um, to the next movie. Um, and it's, and it's, space within this universe and this timeline of the books mm-hmm. um, because I, I did see this one as uh, almost like a prequel if you will to the 1984 dune version um, that that left off before a lot of the meat of the story and therefore that's why I said oh it they al- even always had I'll to be say, made yeah well the, the other thing is that dune is that Lynch's film goes forward in time way too far like he, he pulls forward stuff that happens in the later books into the ending of the, uh, the ending of the book. Yeah. Like they make it rain at the end of the friggin' movie for Christ's sake. No. And this is not me, you know, this is not me being autistic. And like, oh, you're, you're, <laughs> no, it's absolutely not that moment in time for this. It, that, that was the, they, 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 they did so many things wrong relative to what the, 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 the story is about. And what I got, from the two and a half hours I saw of, of Villeneuve's work is this. He understands all of this. He understands what he, he gets what Dune is actually about at its core. And he's layered in all of those things that Dune is about at a metaphor and symbolic level. Okay. And 
if he has to leave stuff on the cutting room floor in order to tell a streamlined story for, you know, for a different medium, so be it. If he can give us a three hour cut of the movie that adds, you know, that adds a little bit more back in just to fill things out again, give Dr. Yu a little bit more in act one, for example, and make us care for him more in act one, that would be great. Um, I'm not so sure that I need to see more of the Mentats per se. I don't think they're, I don't think they're germane to the story he was telling. I think the fact that they're there is, and is present is fine. Um, I really like the fact that they, uh, that they focused the narrative around Paul's experiences uh, and in such a way that it, uh, everything was in service of that plot. And cause that's the way a, a screenplay has to play. Otherwise it becomes misshapen and, and, uh, and, and frumpy. And, uh, then people are complaining that the movie doesn't have any focus and, and they're right. Um, then you get the Phantom Menace, which is a perfectly fine movie. If he would just picked one main character. Yes. But he didn't, he, he played jazz and we've got three main characters and three storylines and, no one's story is more important than the others. And you can't, you can't make movies like that. You know, it's an, the Phantom Menace is a linear, is a, is, is an anthology movie told in a linear time. It's like, it's like, I don't know, Love Actually or whatever, or not Love Actually or whatever. You know, those, those movies are like, you know, uh, where with a whole bunch of series of shorts and vignettes. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's, that's really what it is. If you, you take individual, take the three main characters, Qui-Gon, Amidala and, and Anakin and, and, you know, play their stories out individually. It doesn't matter. Like you know, they, they're just running concurrently, but they're, they are actually vignettes and they're, and you know, Lucas said this and, you know, and like, dude, that's not the way you, you know, you can't play these art, these art fag games um, in a, in a blockbuster movie like this. You can't do that. You're, you, you violated the first rule of screenwriting. Don't do that. <laughs> oh. But you know, Lucas, the artist, uh, the frustrated artist, and Lucas, the uh, commercial filmmaker, have always been at odds. We can have a, we can do a whole podcast on that. It'd be fascinating. So, so, so there we are. I mean, I've got, to, I've got to end it at this point because sure. I'm realizing so many, so many theme, thematic points, so many societal points that we left behind um, for future discussion. Um, yeah. Bottom line, from both our perspectives, worthwhile movie, well mm-hmm. done. Um, but m- more so it speaks to what is to come. Yeah, it really does. And it, I, I will say this, uh, part of me really wishes that they could have just put the whole movie out now. Yes. Because the story of the Fremen and Paul Atreides in the second half of the film, where all the payoff is, it may be by 2023 that it's too late to learn that lesson. And and I, I agree. I was almost disappointed that I'm going to have mm-hmm. to wait a year, which, as we know, is really two years. Yep. Um, it's not going to come out in one year. It, it, it There's too much time in between when it's a story ready to be, be told now. And yeah, I, you know, I don't know if the I, bud, I don't know if the budget wasn't there and it had to be done this way. But in yeah, in our modern in our modern times of so many great. Uh, mini series that are put out on these platforms. It's just, it wouldn't it be great if we could binge this, um, wait six months, binge another season. Uh, Tom, yeah, no, I would have been good. I've got, I've got 
people calling, business texting. I really enjoyed spending time with you once again. I've got to get back to this economic life that I live. You've got to get, sounds like you just fired up another stogie. So <laughs> I'll, I'll let you figure out if the, if the dog is uh, barking at a giant snake that is about to come and consume one of your goats, or if, uh, if it's a deer that needs uh, rustling off. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Jay. It was good talking to you, as always. We should do this more often. You bet. All right. Bye, Tom. Take care. Let's be friends. We're all on this cosmic spaceship together. Subscribe and share the Conservative Hippie Podcast. Visit our sponsors, SmokeAndJays.com. Everything for your smoke and lifestyle. StonerHoroscopes.com. Adora Zen dishes cosmic vibes for the stoner at heart. KickFromTheSpot.com. Soccer is American.